I was thinking maybe we, that we should maybe uh, adjourn the meeting and, and re, uh, re, re, Ken, uh, Ken, it's done. Seven, six. We sell to Gojo. You don't have it. I'm Kara Swisher, and this is HBO's official Succession podcast. Today is part two of our special series finale episode. To bring it all to a close, we have director and executive producer Mark Mylod on the podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure to also listen to part one of the podcast, where I talk to Jeremy Strong and Alexander Skarsgård about saying goodbye to their characters, Kendall and Matson. Obviously, there will be spoilers, so go watch the final episode before listening. I'm now joined by one of the key people behind the entire series, director and executive producer, Mark Mylod. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Mark. I'm excited to dig into the finale with you. Uh, thanks, Cora. It's nice to be back. So how does it feel to be done, I guess? Oh, big, big come down. I've never experienced that level of sadness, I must admit, for about a month after we finished shooting. Uh, it was I was cushioned to start with because Jesse and I went straight into post-production on the last couple of episodes. That, of course, was all-consuming in itself. But once that was done, I was finding less and less excuses to get into the edit. I had to face the future and, you know, reintroduce myself to my children and my wife. How were they? Um, very accepting, actually. They got older, I guess. The kids got... <laughs> yeah, they're all at college now. <laughs> so when you think of it as a full, complete work, how do you think about it? I don't know if I've ever categorized it, to be honest, Cara. There is a unique quality, I think, to succession, which makes it difficult to categorize. But it is, of course, it's one big circle. It's all cyclical. It's almost like that surrealist thing where you can never get above one level. You just keep going around to the same place, Mm -hmm. which, of course, under normal circumstances would make the series incredibly repetitive and ultimately boring. But there's something, obviously, in the brilliance of the writing and the brilliance of the playing, where that never being able to escape. Right their trap. They just go around in circles, season after season. So, and that kind of lack of progress in any meaningful way, uh, yeah, I don't know how the heck that's so entertaining, but it really is. Yeah, I was thinking more like Dickens, because it was put out in newspapers, you know, kind of in the serial way, but Scrooge at least changed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't think anybody really changes, do they? I mean, their situation changes and things happen to them and they evolve. Tom and Shiv, obviously, in terms of the the nature of their marriage, um, that certainly evolves. But the natures of the characters, I suppose, you know, as with people, our natures don't fundamentally change, really. Just things happen to us. Right. Happened to us. That's exactly how to describe it. So when we talked during this season, you mentioned the table read for this finale script was quite mm. emotional. Now that we've seen it, can you tell me more about what that experience was like with the group together? It's funny that the, my most immediate memory when you bring that up, Cara, was sitting next to Jesse and facing this kind of semicircle of the cast and Jesse's voice cracking in a way that I've never heard before. And I suppose it just reminded me again of just how extraordinarily important that moment is for for the writer, for the creator of the show, to hear his words aloud for the first time and the last time of the finale episode. Um, That's the closest I've seen him to being really emotionally undone. And uh, the rest of us were 
trying to keep a lid on it. I always go around and say hi to everybody. Obviously, we're pretty close after five years of working sure. together. So I was going around and doing my usual rounds of, hey, how's it going? Um, and nobody wanted to talk. Um, oh, you know, well, I would have yeah. taken it personally on any other day. Um, yeah, there was a tension and a sadness, as you can imagine. There's so many, this is the last time we'll do this and this is the last mm-hmm. time we'll do that. But that was the first real big one. Right. This is the last time we'll all be in this room reading a script for the first time together. Right, right, absolutely. There's so much pressure on TV series to really land the final episode, but the penultimate episode, which you also directed, is just as important. How do you think of these two as a couplet? I do think of them as a couplet, but I also think of the season as as one long story. One day after the next kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, and specific structure to this season as being 10, maybe 12 days, but that crunch timeline, we've never really attempted that so deliberately before. And consequently, you know, the emotional state, particularly from obviously from episode three onwards, is so important to mm-hmm. track that truthfully from episode three through to episode 10. Right. Did you have to get something right in episode nine that in order to set up episode 10? Oh, yes. Just structurally, in terms of character structure, where we needed the three siblings to be specifically in the, at the end of episode nine was incredibly important. We needed Shiv to be ascendant. We needed Kendall to be ascendant. And we needed Roman to be on the floor, to be utterly broken. That was mm-hmm. really important in order to launch the trajectory of episode 10. It was interesting. Episode 10 felt a lot more insular. I had been feeling like everything had gotten smaller and smaller throughout the four seasons, mm-hmm. you know. But episode nine's in a big church. There's no Mencken, no post-election riots, no big set piece with hundreds of extras. The politics of the nation, we really don't know what's going to happen with that. Mm-hmm. that. That's just left hanging. How do you think about this shift to something quiet and more emotional for the finale? Because it's very noisy up ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it isn't a big, in terms of scale and the scope, it doesn't have that. It focuses intensely and intimately on Kendall's having to truthfully and convincingly do the impossible, and that is Mm. convince his two siblings to come aboard. And that's, you know, we've spent uh, maybe two years of time with these characters as something that was unthinkable that there should ever be an accord, that kind of genuine alliance when it really comes down to who's CEO. And yet, having broken... Roman's will, if you like, at the end of episode nine, breaking Shiv's will relatively early in episode 10. Mm -hmm. We not only had to do that, but with the benefit of the ticking clock, with the looming board meeting, we forced those characters into having to make that switch. So I hope that we earned that. Yeah, the swimming scene at mom's house, for example. I do love that we got to spend more time with Carolyn. Um, She had some great one-liners, like when she says, oh, a huge board meeting. I've never had my plans ruined by a huge board meeting before. She's very funny. What an understated, but very funny uh, actress. Why was it important to bring us into her world to be in her house? Because she's been a relatively peripheral character. comes Mm. in, takes some shots at the kids and leaves, essentially. For me, and I can't speak for Jesse and why he, he wrote it that way, I loved the idea of an almost normal version of family. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the father has passed, but there's mum and there's three kids in one house, albeit, you know, a Roy version of a normal house. Whenever we get a window into those characters as children, I feel that 
that gives us a window into their vulnerabilities and a connection to them. And that's what we needed. Even though he hides out after being beaten, she can't care for him, you know? Yeah. He wants a parent. He still thinks she's going to be a parent. Yeah, desperately needs it. And of course, and that's the closest he'll ever get really to, you know, just to be there on a one-on-one with her, mm-hmm. seeking that refuge. And and there is a there's a little oasis there. I hope that when the characters leave that place from to fly back from Barbados to New York, that there is a sense, I'm, I'm sure our audience are far too wily to be seduced entirely, but there is a mm-hmm. sense that, okay, maybe this could actually work. Yeah, they had some sort of group think together. It was where Shiv learns Matt's and his betrayed her. So she joins back up with her brothers. Of course, that's what prompts her, not because she believes in either of them. And then they agree to support Kendall as CEO. Let's listen to a minute of this. I don't know. We could give it to him. Yeah. You probably should. Unless. Unless. Unless we kill him. Okay. Kill him. Yeah. I like that. That's intriguing how we do it. Well, just a bit of horseplay gone wrong. Just a biff to the head and a bonk on the noggin with a coconut. Basically, he goes limp. He goes around, comes around. Yeah, and if we kill him, we get to go to bed. I'm tired. It'd be so annoying if it went wrong. The murdering. Like, you just try to murder me? Dude, that is so not actually what you're meant to do, and it is not a good thing to do. You guys actually just murdered me. You guys are the worst. How (laughs) dare you? This is a very light moment, this night scene. What do you think they're actually feeling? What are they hoping for to believe in him, right? Which they don't, because the minute it turns, they go right back. Yes, it is the classic thing of how we all deceive ourselves when it's necessary to. And I I think that is what's going on here. There is no other path at this point, Mm -hmm. so let's make the best of it, I think is the somewhat prosaic conclusion that both characters are coming to in this moment. But I think with both of them a relief to have an excuse. If the ghost of Logan were before them, they could both say, I couldn't chase it anymore. I pushed as far as I could, but then I could go no further. And they had a legitimate excuse to to not fulfill that proposed destiny. And their impersonations of Kendall are very funny. (laughs) How many versions did you do with the two of them? (laughs) Just lots, because we never do the same thing twice. Um, So there were a lot, and there were improvised versions because it's Kieran and Sarah, so of course there are going to be. So there were a bunch of different versions. That just happened to be the one that made Jesse and I laugh the most. Yeah, they were very funny. I could see them enjoying themselves there. They finally got to also act as playful kids instead of competitors, probably the happiest we've seen them together. How did you get like that, besides making them make that drink? We talked about that with Jeremy. But how did you get that? And what was the vibe filming those sequences? You know, first of all, we're in an incredibly beautiful house in Barbados. So the scene is set. Um, it's difficult not to have a great time. It's funny with any kind of tone setting with that cast, particularly with the siblings and, and Matthew also. Tonal conversations are something that we rarely have. There'll be not even corrections. After the first take, which I try to be as you know freestyle with as possible, mm-hmm. there are adjustments and there's, you know, could we pursue this? Let's explore that. But in terms of saying, hey, you're going to be happy now, they're just way too smart for me to do that. You know, they don't need somebody to say that. Mm-hmm. They know that and they study it with extraordinary detail, so they're armed to the teeth. Right. You could sort of see what they would have been like as children if they had had support, right? 
Exactly. That's lovely. The tragic comic blend, isn't it? Where it's funny, but that heartrending sense of they could have been vaguely normal, you know, functioning adults instead of just walking around with this weight. And that was a happy moment. You saw that, the possibilities. It probably was the happiest moment. Can you think of a happier moment in succession? The only time I can remember them vaguely being as happy as that really, I suppose the beginning of season four, when they're, that illusion of having transcended Logan and moved to the West Coast. And perhaps there's a scene that I was always really fond of, I think it was in the penultimate episode of season one, where they go to the boathouse for a midnight spliff or something, mm-hmm. where, the, again, there was that sense of childhood, of innocence and, and connection and shared experience. Right. But things eventually get back to the real world and the boardroom boat. Before we get there, we go back to Logan's apartment. We say goodbye to Connor and say hello to Willow's cow print couch. (laughs) Where do you think things stand at the end? She was hoping he would go off to uh, another place so she can enjoy the apartment herself, finally. I had very mixed feelings when I read this scene in the script. I've always rooted for Connor and Willow. So for the inevitable truth, and I do see why Jesse wrote this, and I see the emotional truth in it, to make that conclusion instead of that more fanciful, and they all lived happily ever after. I I was kind of sad about that. They're a little emotionally bereft, though, Mark. (laughs) I I don't know if you've noticed. (laughs) No. (laughs) They're just misunderstood. (laughs) Yeah, right, yeah. But they do have emotions. Obviously, we see a beautiful virtual dinner with Logan Mm. at the apartment. She, Roman and Kendall are staring at the video. Is it the first time? They're seeing it. And when did the actors actually first see it? It was, yeah. We literally filmed that scene an hour mm-hmm. before we shot their reaction to it. Our location schedule was such that that was necessary. So we did this ridiculously kind of quick turnaround from shooting it on an iPhone to, to whip it up. And the brilliant Katrina Whalen, our mm-hmm. graphics producer, um, did this incredibly quick turnaround on it to make it, you know, usable for playback. But we specifically kept the actors apart from that so they could react and they wouldn't have wanted it any other way you know and uh, I think that was the most emotional I've ever been on set for the entire really why I don't know in that uh, you know in episode nine when Roman is hijacked by emotion at the worst possible moment for him making Mm -hmm. as he stands up for the eulogy that actually happened to me at my own mother's funeral at which there were not 900 people present but exactly the same thing happened to me and that you know, it's the inconvenience of emotion. You get hijacked at all these unexpected times. And and for me, we shot the first take of it, which is always, particularly on emotional reactions, the most important to me. Mm-hmm. And as I called cut, I, I couldn't say it. And I walked onto set because I was in a big hurry to shoot a lot of material. And I, I basically couldn't speak. I was just trying not to cry. And mm-hmm. I don't know why. I find it really profoundly moving. And I don't, I don't exactly know why that particular moment What's the story behind the dinner scene? And it was important for you and Jesse to have Brian Cox back for the finale in some form? I presume, and I can't speak for Jesse in this, so I'll just speak for what I read into it. For me, it was to dimensionalize Logan. With Brian's character, we've always somewhat seen him in conflict. Mm-hmm. We rarely get the chance to dimensionalize the character. I think perhaps that might have been frustrating for Brian somewhat with this incredible range that he has. But there's that love, that window and a side of their father that they could never really access. And yet yeah. there he was with these people that we assumed would just kowtow to him and had this particular dynamic. And yet you saw that there's this whole kind of private life that they were not party to. And actually Alan's character was. Um, so 
on the one hand, I expect that must have been incredibly hurtful to them, but they were in a place where they were able to be generous with that, I suppose. Right. Yeah. And it's important to have Brian back, I think. <laughs> and that. Yeah. But he wasn't in the boardroom fight. Did you all debate where the final showdown would happen? Or it's sort of the typical boardroom. I've been near around a lot of those. How did you make it feel so tense? Obviously, the glass is important where everyone can see it all unfolding. Yeah, the goldfish bowl is important for the mise-en-scene, isn't it? It's everything and everything. And of course, it starts with Jesse's brilliant writing, starts and ends with that, really, and our brilliant cast. Um, from my point of view, I'm just looking for every tiny little incremental element that I can crank up the tension just a tiny bit in the hope that cumulatively that will... Makes everyone feel awkward and upset. Sometimes you you set up scenes without telling Jeremy so you could give him something spontaneous to respond to. Did you do that in this scene? He thought Shiv was going to go with him, right? No. Yeah. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was all improvised. That wasn't the ending at all. <laughs> at one point after the denouement with the three siblings in the in their kind of private room that they go into to fight, at one point I shouted to Jeremy to go back into the boardroom. And he did. And the camera, because we have genius camera mm-hmm. operators and brilliant sound team who everybody just went with it and the actors in the boardroom saw it coming so we followed jeremy's character in back into the boardroom it wasn't scripted that particular point and he tried to muster some dignity and to reset proceedings Mm -hmm. and peter friedman brilliantly just stayed with it we swung the camera to him he said it's done you don't have it we swung back to Jeremy and we took him into the elevator, which was always scripted that he would walk to the elevator. But that moment was entirely improvised and it ended up in the final cut because there was a beautiful kind of closure and finality to it. Right. So that's one that comes to mind. Yeah, you haven't got it. The key vote was Shiv, obviously. What was the moment, when did she start to wobble, do you think? Well, let's go back to the beach for a second. You know, that accord by necessity between Roman and Shiv and maybe in even the next morning in that little goodbye hug between Harriet's character and, Sh- and Sarah, a little, I hope, sense of Harriet's character knowing that she wasn't 100% there. But really, I suppose it's when Kendall sits down at his dad's desk when they meet with Stewie before going down to the final board meeting. The reality of seeing him there, that suddenly made it real, that is the future, him sat there in that insufferable way from her point of view. That's when I think the denial started to crack. And then seeing the cronyism with Stewie and seeing how she might be sidelined. And again, then they're just seeing his Arrogance. The arrogance in the in the board meeting itself. It would do accumulatively. And that was actually a big point of discussion between Jesse and I in the writing and to, as it was in episode nine as to how much should we seed and if we should seed at all Kieran's descent and fall, the eulogy, should we seed that at all? And, and I thought Jesse was very clever and he did a rewrite on a scene there so that we could give Kieran the chance to react to the story of his father being locked in the hold in the Atlantic crossing with the convoy and just so we were able to take Kieran down instead of it just coming out of nowhere. And we did the same with Sarah, I think, in the initial script, perhaps, and forgive me, Jesse, if I'm this a disservice. Um, I think we'd originally envisaged it 
as Shiv's walking out of the room and I can't stomach it, of that coming out of nowhere. So dramatically, right. we, the audience, would be, where the heck did that come from? And there was, I think we both came to the conclusion that that might feel a little dif- like a device. Well, she also found out about Tom and that maybe she had another path, right? Yes, there is that element, isn't there? The big fight between Shiv, Kendall, and Roman is devastating. Everyone's watching, as we said. How long did that take to film and how did you get them into this explosive place. I mean, there's been years and years of anger and pain pouring out of them and it comes back again. Yeah, I, we had to do something that we don't normally do when we're coming up to a scene of such conflict. Um, normally, I'll just say you're going to walk into that room and I won't give them anything else because I don't want to burden them. Mm-hmm. And then I'll talk with the rest of the team as to how we're going to you know, film it and uh, I'll keep them separate from that. With this, we had a, you know, Sarah was very pregnant by the time we shot that. So we did have safety meetings that talked about the parameters of the physical contact between the characters, which of course, Jeremy and Kieran were very concerned. But beyond that, they're just going to find it. And I may ask for more physical. I might ask for maybe this could come down to the floor. So we'll play nuances in subsequent takes, but yeah, they don't need revving up. No, and they also also bring back a lot of things, not just his mm-hmm. drug use and the kids and everything else, but the waiter's death from season one came back in the fight. Shiv was sort of speaking the unspeakable thing. Why did she do that, and why does he do that? I think there's almost a nihilism, isn't there, which Roman expresses so beautifully. This is where, where bullshit. I remember reading that and just being devastated for it because where bullshit... In the, in the most extraordinary way, just summed up those characters entirely. Um, in that truth, finally settled on them. And Kendall was kind of the last person standing in denial of that truth. Roman probably realised it a while ago. In that moment, I think Shiv perhaps had realised it. However, I'm not sure how consciously, but there was a there's a nihilistic, almost giddiness in just blowing it all up, admitting. That they're losers. So, yeah. And in the end, none of these loser kids win. It's Tom who becomes CEO because, as Matson says, he wants to be a pain sponge. He's willing to make the compromises. Did you know it was always going to be Tom? No. No, I didn't. And I deliberately didn't ask. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to find myself unconsciously steering myself or anything else that way, which is probably arrogant of me. Not that I'm not that sure that, that that would have come across anyway. But no, I didn't want to know. So I specifically... I never asked what the last couple of scenes were going to be until we got really close to production. I wanted to stay blank on that, but I wasn't surprised, if you like. It seemed one of the many beauties of Jesse's writing is that when you look back at it the second time, it seems utterly inevitable. Yeah. I want to return to a scene earlier in the episode between Tom and Shiv because it feels like a very key exchange of dialogue. Shiv is on a private plane. At this point, she still thinks she'll be CEO. She calls Tom. Let's listen. Look, I know that we've said the worst things, but I i think I've always just been scared in relationships of, uh, you know, like, the underneaths. You know, what's the worst thing a person thinks? But we know. But. Once you've said and done the worst things, you're kind of free. Yeah, I guess, I guess my question is, are you interested in a real relationship? Honest to God, I don't know. Shiv, I just, I, uh, 
I just don't know. Okay. Sure. All right. Bye. That's heartbreaking. She wants something and she asks for it directly, which she never does, right? Yeah, exactly. She thought he would say yes, right? What's changed for him? I think after the, you know, the fight at the tailgate party, I think on some level that was more kind of cathartic for her than it was for him, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he's just so hurt by that time. It is a, there's, there is an incredible honesty to that conversation. But her, as you say, it's so heartbreaking that Shiv's emotional intelligence in terms of really intimate relationships, attempts of genuine intimacy, so kind of adolescent and unsophisticated, but no less intense or genuine for that. So it's a genuine attempt to reach out for something that she wants. And, you know, we all feel if we show the worst of ourselves to our partner that they won't love us anymore. And she is hoping that he still will. And in effect, he says, maybe I don't. And that's, yeah, that's wounding, isn't it? Yeah, and she, of course, hangs up because she doesn't get, she can't take that next step. A mature person would stay in that conversation. She feels like it's transactional again and that Tom has some power. Someone has the hand in the relationship. Do you think they can have a real relationship in the future? Oh, I think they can. I think they very much can, yes. Because without wishing to be cynical or sound cynical, all relationships are a transaction on some level, a continuous seesaw of power that we try to balance to maintain them. I wish I could remember an exquisite piece of writing the, in the final scene when Shiv and Tom are in the car driving away together. And it was something to the effect of two unexploded bombs being transported with the utmost care. And I thought it was such a beautiful piece of writing. And it was a, it's a shame that stage directions can't make the cut. But he, he reaches out to her hand, is that correct? He, yes, he makes the offer. And she accepts without warmth. So it, the moment itself is a, is a business transaction. Yeah, you can see she's going to take over from I was like, oh, no, Tom. <laughs> Do you think so? It's fine. I actually disagree with that, Cara. Oh, really? Tell me why. I disagree because I think that Tom has evolved to a point and why I feel optimistic about their marriage is that I feel that the seesaw is finally balanced in a way that has never has been for one mm. second in the time that we've watched their relationship. So I feel now that he is equipped to push back on anything that is too overbearing for him. I, so I feel that it's an equal fight for the first time, and that's why I think it will succeed. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the last images, as you said, is if she was going to squeeze his hand or show any kind of thing. It just, what were you trying to do 
in that scene. And let me say it's reminiscent at the end of The Graduate when Ben and Elaine are sitting in the back of the bus and their smiles turn into something else. It looked like that. It did. Like, oh no, what did we just do? So what what do you think the couple's future is? What was the message being sent there? First of all, I love that you referenced The Graduate, which was one of my all-time favorite films for a start. And secondly, that was very much a dynamic in the framing that that we were going mm-hmm. for. There isn't the transition there in the same way that obviously from, from giddiness to what is our future necessarily. I think it's an optimistic moment, but in a succession style in that, that I think there's absolute truth to it within the parameters of their relationship. They're having a kid and I genuinely think it will work and there will be underlying tensions and resentments as there is in any lifelong relationship. Um, But I genuinely feel optimistic for them. And the fact that she puts her hand to that position, of course, she's not going to grab it and give him a kiss. Of course, that's never going to happen. But that is an acceptance of Tom's new position. Yeah, it's quite a scene. You're like, oh no. Well, she'll be rich. So that's what I kept thinking. Like when I was feeling bad for all these kids, I was like, you know, what, they're going to be they're really billionaires. Rich. <laughs> so while Tom and Chip drive away in the car together, semi holding hands, we leave Roman at a bar sipping a martini. He's all alone. He's also been freed from the company. Do you see this as an optimistic ending for Roman? Uh, yeah, I really wanted to. I really wanted to think, you know, he'll just be a court jester and, and live out a happy denial. But no, I mean, this exquisite performance i'd basically ask kieran to walk in and have a martini but i knew he'd find something else there and the script had already alluded to it and you'll see in the cut just that look of where the mask slips for a moment Mm -hmm. and that endless pain there's i don't see any escape from that i thought i thought that just that moment from kieran was just so devastating and i don't feel any optimism for that poor character Wow. Anyway, you end the episode and the whole series with Kendall staring over the railing at Hudson River in Battery Park. Why did you choose that location? I, it's a windy, it's a fantastic location. I've been there many times. Actually, it came about, first thing was what's logical in terms of the timeline of, I think we established that they've been, you know, somewhere in the downtown area in the financial district. So I wanted to honor that and not just go somewhere that was photographically fun. And then it was a question of what would give me a sense of scope and a sense of, you know, hopefully a little epic scale. Obviously, I live in New York, so I know the coastline pretty well. But I pretty much walked from Brooklyn Bridge around to Chelsea Harbour, and it, it just seemed like the right place, really, I suppose. But there was this day, there was a cold snap. It was extraordinary. It was absolutely frigid and freezing. And for the first few takes that we did, Jeremy was, uh, you know, upset in perfectly legitimate way he said i can't feel anything apart from the cold which i also felt if i'm really honest was kind of great on some level there was something about that suffering um yeah it was so extraordinarily bleak what do you think he's thinking when he's looking at the water i was thinking if, am i going to jump in or not yeah that's to me what it, you know a bunch of other stuff but you know somewhat reductively am i going to kill myself you know he alludes to that somewhat as a tool and he says sometimes i think i might die um you know if i don't get it we did talk about what's the worst ending for kendall and it really is i think it's this way it's always been a tragedy in that on the one hand okay his choice it seems to me that his life choices here at least where he is is either throw himself into freezing water and die a horrible death or to spend his whole life in this kind of purgatory of unfulfilled destiny and self-flagellation guilt ruined every relationship but like you say he's a billionaire so what are we going to do? Apparently money doesn't buy happiness, but it buys nice apartments, that's for sure. <laughs> really nice apartments. Did you film any alternate endings? 
I think there was a lot of debate about what the last shot would be, on which vignette we might finish on, because they all felt really strong. Jeremy talked about scrabbling over the edge too, but you didn't pick that. No, just because I love that position of that's your choice, this this terrible choice that is no choice, and he's stuck in a purgatory for the rest of his life. I thought that was just more interesting. Or maybe he tries, but you don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's the you don't know, which I think is the most interesting choice. Yeah, and the guy's there to save him too, so he probably doesn't. Like, it makes people think a lot. So final questions, the brilliant trick of this series is that you made us care for these immoral billionaires. I do care for them, and things feel bleak for them. Again, I don't feel sorry for them. But do you see any hope for the Roys after this? It's sort of a relief that they're not scrabbling for power here in some fashion. They just have money. Do you see any hope for them? I do in terms of, I feel more optimistic about Tom and Shiv than any other relationship. I worry about Roman in terms of substance abuse, alcohol abuse. I worry about him getting lost. With Kendall, I just, yeah, I suppose I worry about just his kind of depression, I suppose. But but I think if they could ever get past that, they just move to, yeah, to a place of freedom and actually use all that incredible wealth just to try and find some other purpose in, in life. This show is definitely toggled between tragedy and comedy in the end. It's more tragic at the end, I'd say. What do you think is the real tragedy of succession? I guess that's my last question. Oh, blimey. You know, my temptation there was to seek some great kind of social justice comment. But you know what? From the very start, I've actively tried to connect to those characters and tried to find some some kind of redemption, some chink, some vulnerability where I really cared for them. And I did. I ended up caring for them so much, almost paternal need and desire to protect them. And that's what I walk away from, actually. It's those three characters, and by extension, Matthew's character, Nick's character, everybody. I, I the, the characters become blurred with the actors, and I care about them, and I care about their well-being. And that's what I'm left with, just those three broken people Hopelessly broken? Uh, Yeah, I would say hopelessly broken. I think it is a tragedy, yes. Mark, thank you so much. You are really such a gifted director, but a gifted storyteller too. I hope you get to meet your children again and take a nap now that this is all over. (laughs) Thanks, Cara. Thanks so much. It was lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Okay, listeners, we've reached the end of the line. The Roy family saga is complete And I am feeling a mix of emotions. Even though it's painful, this ending feels completely right. I've thought a lot about what to say about this series, and it reminds me of the opening of Anna Karenina by Russia's famed novelist Leo Tolstoy, who wrote perhaps the most famous line about families. All happy families resemble one another, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And you can certainly say that about the Roys, who are unhappy in ways none of us could fathom a four-season television version of a novel about pain of all kinds, most especially the pain that lack of love results in. The thing is, as he said, Logan loved his kids, but he did it badly, and they returned the same. It's really a tragedy, but it's also deeply profound and often funny as we see glimpses of them in ourselves, perhaps far too often. The thing is, the Roys do resemble us. If we were trapped by money and power and luxury and affluence, unable to escape our fate. 
Fate has a terrible power. You cannot escape it by wealth or war. No fort will keep it out. No ship outruns it, wrote Sophocles. And the Roys, in the end, got all the fate they deserved. And that breaks our hearts. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your life. Well, your succession life. And I also want to thank Mark Mylod and all of my wonderful guests who have come on the podcast this season and last season. The Official Succession Podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Sharon Bardales and Pedro Alvira at Pineapple Street Studios for additional engineering. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Becky Rowe, Allison Cohen, Savon Slater, and Kenya Reyes on the HBO podcast team. Maynard Key, Tom Haskard, Nicholas Park, and Veronica Geronimo on the motion creative team. Diego Aldana, Lexi Barco, and Olivia Beer Ford in media relations and corporate communications. Nora Skinner and Max Holloman in HBO programming. And Mark Dumay, Michael Hagos, Charlie Weber, Zach Crame, Rosie Shen, and Liz Keating in HBO Marketing. And most of all, thanks so much to the wonderful world that Jesse Armstrong created and to the Roy family. We wish them well, but we know it's not going to turn out that way. In honor of our dearly departed Logan Roy, I'll leave you with these parting words. Fuck off. You've been listening to me interviewing artists, creators, and people playing billionaires or those sucking up to them, and there are a lot of them. If you like that, you can listen to my other podcast, On with Kara Swisher, in which I grill artists, CEOs, billionaires, experts, but rarely do I allow a suck up. And they're all real, 100%. Search for On with Kara Swisher wherever you get your podcasts. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.